The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Tate Modern's exhibition uniting Hilma F. Clint and Piet Mondrian, Joan Quick to See Smith at the Whitney Museum in New York, and a gateway to Roman Britain is reconstructed. I take a tour of Tate Modern's exhibition that brings together the Swedish painter Hilma F. Klint and the Dutch artist Piet Mondrian with one of its curators, Bryony Fur. Our editor, America's Ben Sutton, visited the Whitney to talk to the Native American artist Joan Quick to See Smith as her retrospective opens at the museum. And this episode's work of the week is a reconstruction of a Roman gateway that's just opened at Richborough Roman Fort in Kent in southern England. Andrew J. Roberts, a properties historian with English Heritage, the charity that looks after the historic site, tells me about the reconstruction. Don't forget you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast A Brush With and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, Hilma F. Clint and Piet Mondrian, Forms of Life, is a major exhibition at Tate Modern in London, exploring the two artists' distinctive contributions to abstraction, their shared interest in esoteric belief systems, and their deep engagement with the natural world. F. Clint was born in Stockholm in Sweden in 1862, and Mondrian in Amersfoort in the Netherlands a decade later, and the two never knew each other or indeed saw each other's work. The reception of the two artists in the art world and beyond could not be more different. Mondrian was a key figure in the modernist avant-garde who reached acclaim in his own lifetime and exerted enormous influence on subsequent generations as well as gaining popular recognition as his trademark grids effectively became a brand used on everything from Yves Saint Laurent dresses to L'Oreal hair products. Meanwhile, Af Clint's vast archive of more than a thousand paintings and watercolours was never exhibited in her lifetime and when she died in 1944 her will stipulated that her work should not be shown until 20 years later. Though it began to be exhibited from the mid-1980s, it hasn't been until the past decade that she's been shown widely and in-depth in museums across Europe and the US, particularly in a survey show at the Guggenheim Museum in New York in 2018-19, to which drew more than 600,000 people. So, are these hugely distinct artists happy bedfellows at Tate Modern? I took a tour with one of the show's curators, Bryony Fur, to find out. Bryony... One of the questions I wanted to begin with is why show these two artists together? Because they didn't know each other, they were from different countries and so on. There isn't an obvious thing that links them, but what does link them? Hmm. Well, you're right, Ben. I mean, they, they didn't know each other. They're born within 10 years of each other. They died the same year. But, I mean, that's not a, a reason to link them. I take your point. But we felt that... There have been several wonderful Hilma F. Clint exhibitions over the last 10 years when she's kind of come to public, even global attention now, really a meteoric rise, I think, for yeah, this it artist. It bears repeating that the Guggenheim show was the most successful show in their history in Incredible. terms of Incredible. Yeah. And really, there had been exhibitions before, smaller exhibitions, but really the Moderna Mosaic show 
in 2013 was really the first large-scale retrospective exhibition of her work. On the other hand, you have Mondrian, canonic abstract artist. The myth of Mondrian, I would say, was already being constructed in the 1920s, you know, so he'd come to his classic grid painting by 1920-21. And here we have 100 years of Mondrian. And I can see that sense of why put them together, but... I mean, I hope the exhibition actually demonstrates why. Because we wanted to suggest that there were alternative versions of the story of abstraction. And by putting these two artists together, a very well-established male abstract painter and this Swedish mystic, Hilma Avklint, a much-overlooked woman artist that we could really rethink abstraction's relationship to nature and to think from a more ecological perspective, to try to throw some of the pieces in the air of the kind of received wisdom about geometric abstraction, rejecting nature. And Hilma F. Clint is this extraordinary figure who's not a conventional artist in the way that I think many people might think of how artists work with galleries, studios and so on, but was trained as an artist. And both Mondrian and Hilma Afklint began as landscape painters in the 1880s and 90s. And I think that that rootedness in nature and the natural world was a starting point that we felt we could sort of undo some of the conventional narratives about the geometric in abstraction because both of them end up making wild geometric pieces of of painting. There's a really interesting phrase that Frances Morris uses in an essay in the catalogue where she talks about rewilding historic artists and I think that's a really nice phrase obviously with this natural theme that you were just discussing there but also this idea of taking Mondrian out of a space where it's so tightly confined within modernism and the history of modernism Mm. and saying his ideas were actually quite a lot wilder than a lot of those ideas uh, suggest. Absolutely, I love that phrase too and we really worked with that idea of rewilding of abstraction. You know, Mondrian might paint grids with straight lines but there's something very excessive about Mondrian's preoccupation dare I say it, sort of obsession with certain ways of painting and an incredible variation as well as we'll see through the exhibition and in this room placing his famous evolution painting next to these wild hallucinatory highly charged landscapes that depict dunes in these purples and mauves and greens and blues next to Hilma F. Clint's series Evolution is intended to kind of give that sense of let's charge up you know this almost visceral sense of what painting can do. I'm really struck by the fact that this is probably the point in the show where their artistic languages are most alike. Yeah. In the sense that, you know, it is a figurative painting by Mondrian. Of course, it's symbolic, deeply symbolic yeah. picture. But also you have figures by F. Clint directly opposite it. Here there's a hallucinatory quality to both of them. And this links to this very important yeah. mystical or esoteric element, which is a key aspect, and it's well known about Mondrian, but often kept the quieter side of interpretation yeah. of his work. Yes, I mean, there's been 
a lot of debate about the significance of mystical ideas or theosophical ideas, this spiritual movement for Mondrian. And here we have Mondrian at his most theosophical and likewise the theme of evolution for both artists, which has an important theosophical and spiritual meaning that takes the ideas of Darwin and so on around evolution, but also places it in the context of formal and spiritual evolution. You know, this is the place where they are closest, as you say. But also to suggest that the work of both artists is very complicated, and whilst Mondrian might at this point be at his most symbolic, it's almost an eye of the needle through which he has to pass, I feel. Which is not to say that he jettisons completely his interest in spiritualism, but he really does not. You know, he has a picture of Madame Blavatsky to his dying day. And she, she's a sort of linchpin of theosophy. Yes, exactly. So I think the question for me, which is perhaps for people to ponder and think about, is even if they're twinned with this interest in theosophy... These are not simply reflections of the theosophical system or some, you know, system of belief. They are paintings, you know, and they're series of paintings and what that relationship is. That's really fascinating. Let's move on to one of the most unexpected parts of the show, the flower painting. Sure. So, as I say, we're in a room full of flower paintings now. Now, I knew... Hilmer F. Klint's flower paintings, but I didn't know Mondrian's. Is there a reason why I didn't know Mondrian's mm. up to now? You know, they are known, I think, Mondrian's flower paintings, but they tended to have been overlooked and thought of, not least by Mondrian himself, as sort of commercial necessity, that certainly he began painting flowers, and we have examples here of some of his earliest flower paintings from the 1890s, you know, where he's painting um, chrysanthemums, and the array of flowers on offer that we want to show on this wall, on three walls of this room, are often highly cultivated examples. It's very characteristic that he's painting chrysanthemums, arum lilies, you know, it's kind of hothouse, they're garden flowers, and they do kind of relate to a fin de siècle preoccupation. These are fashionable flowers, you know. But this theme of rewilding, to bring back these works into a major exhibition that shows Mondrian's abstract work, is to give them another significance. Not to say, I mean, I think he did carry on making flower paintings when he needed money for some of his older patrons, for instance, but he also carried on making them when he was doing his abstract work. And even if there's a commercial aspect to that, there's also an investment, it feels to me, in what he will later call their plastic structure, And you really get that with these chrysanthemum heads, this incredible sculptural, formal sense of the heads of a chrysanthemum. And then obviously we can relate it to some of the art historical context. Here we have works from 1907-8, when he's closer to theosophy, as we said earlier, and there are symbolic connotations. But of course, dying flowers also relates back to Van Gogh and his dying chrysanthemums and the cycle of life. On the other hand, Hilma Af Klint 
her wall of botanical drawings, they're all wild flowers. They're sort of native species from the Nordic countries. You know, there's also a wonderful false morel, a brain mushroom. So I love this idea of coming through, you know, coldsfoot, marrow. There are some nasturtiums, thistles, grasses, but down to this kind of weird fungus. So you really have that sense of a vegetal universe. And that's what we wanted this room to feel like, almost like kind of undergrowth or, you know, a tangle of weeds versus this kind of hothouse feeling of the Mondrian There's an element in F. Clint's drawings of botanical, very scientific style of drawing. You talked about the plasticity, if you like, of Mondrian. Mm. Can can we still see their two styles diverging even here in the sense that I, I sense a diagrammatic element to F. Clint's work right the way through to the end? Yes. Well, I think you can see these as more conventionally based in botanical drawing and certainly women artists. This was one of the few professional places where women artists were able to work in that context. But I think she also, in her way, especially in the wonderful drawing of the brain mushroom, which is hard to identify, but when you see a brain mushroom, you will, <laughs> you will see what a wonderful drawing that is. You know, you, you do have that sense of her being interested in often tendrils or entanglements of plants or the way in which nasturtiums will creep you know, and twine or entwine. So these different kinds of movement that I think, you know, Darwin obviously describes really beautifully. There isn't really an art historical language to do it. But I think the way in which she uses the conventions of botanical drawings that derive from a tradition of flora and really historical works like, you know, Palmstruck, these great botanical illustrators... Let's move on to a room where their mature style really seems to emerge. So we're in a room that's called Dynamic Colour now. And one of the things I'm interested in about this show generally is you very rearely have actually paired a Afklimt painting right next to a Mondrian. It seems to me that's a very deliberate thing to avoid two direct comparisons just to allow them some space to be themselves, mm. if you like, but also to say that they're working in similar territory. Mm. Absolutely. What we wanted was to create a space in which they could be in conversation with one another, but cautious, I suppose, of placing them so close to each other that they'd invite comparisons or, you know, a compare and contrast kind of approach where you know, their trajectories are actually very different. In this room, actually, we ended up allowing them to meet, which I think was a really important moment. But in terms of scale and quality of paintwork, it's not obvious. So we wanted each to be able to show the work in itself to its best advantage, but also Af Klintz in her series Eros, you have a real sense of her floral vocabulary that we've been thinking about and also these pastel pinks that run through this wonderful series. 
but also, surprisingly, I think, for some, that Mondrian is also working with this kind of palette of pastels, which is obviously before he determines the use of black and white and the primaries. But he saw these very much in terms of constellations and here, pier and ocean. So again, the natural world, he doesn't think that we need to depict it in any literal sense, but of course that sense of a, a constellation of a sky, a night sky, or the pier and ocean where you have this effect of water and uh, almost a vibrating quality to that black and white painting. What you can see, I think, which brings him a little closer to Hilmarav Klint, but of course they're so different, is that you can see he's so far away from being a formulaic artist who works with straight lines and works mechanically according to a preconceived plan. I mean, you can see in all the paintings in this room how he's changing his mind as he goes along. And of course, that is more like the slightly more painterly gestural quality of, of Clint. At the same time, there's this lovely sense in which in, in this room you're seeing the distinctions in the kind of application of paint on the one hand, but also the forms. So you do, as you say, these floral, rounded, organic forms. Mm. The organicness is there in, in Mondrian, but those straight lines really are appearing in earnest in this yes. period, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting, almost surprising, to think that he was seen in the 1930s, especially by great art historians like Mayer Shapiro, as, you know, the artist of the standard unit, the artist who reflected the industrial side of modernity, whereas here, in a way, the way it evolves is very much through these resonances in, you know, almost these kind of liquid vibrations, you know, that you find. Let's move on to some spectacular rooms which close the show. So we've jumped a few rooms forward to two really quite spectacular rooms which end the show where you see Mondrian in his purest form on the one hand and then you see the ten largest which is the kind of grand apotheosis of the paintings for the Temple series by F. Clint. Obviously this is a very intentional moment that you see these artists in their fullest sense. Is is it very deliberate that you kept them apart at this point as well? Mm. Well, we also have come full circle because the ten largest is from 1907. So we've come back to the beginning of the show. Happens to be the only room in the exhibition that is big enough for those extraordinary paintings. But also to give each artist, as you say, a kind of climactic moment. And to show Mondrian as well, who's, you know, far more spare. You know, you have these works by Mondrian, including these wonderful large diamond paintings that are called lozenges Mm. placed high on the wall showing how he really does activate space he creates immersive environments and anybody who's seen the exhibitions of Mondrian in his studio or the pictures of Mondrian in his studio know how much he created his environment so that sense of his own relationship to architecture as well as the natural world and this sense of an immersive environmental vision of his work we thought that kind of paired with Af Clint's 10 largest which were I see them as wall paintings in a way that are colossal They were not originally framed. 
you know, they are first framed in the 80s. There was a On the Spiritual in Art show curated in Los Angeles by Morris Tuckman, and I believe one was framed and subsequently. But, you know, that sense of creating this cycle, because it is a cycle of life. You really get that sort of temple feel from these ones in Absolutely. particular. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting to me because that's a cycle of life that goes round the room. We don't know how she originally envisaged them, but it starts with early childhood and it goes to old age. But that sense of a kind of you're moving around the room. Of course, these lozenges or diamond paintings by Mondrian are also a kind of rotation. So you also have that sense of a body moving through space. And so to see them, yes, both of them at their most ambitious, working with architectural space, working on these huge, well, I've Clint on this huge, extraordinary scale, which, you know, the mind boggles. And obviously she is working with others to produce this. It's actually tempera, so she's really putting it down quite quickly and you feel that sense of this bright, vivid colour it's difficult to get tempera down on such a vast surface, isn't it? Well, it's interesting because when I first saw that it's tempera, you're kind of thinking of little panel painting, yeah, exactly. aren't you, yeah, and yeah. this miniaturist style. But this is, you know, powder mixed with water. And you feel almost there's a kind of scenography. She's working on a big scale. You can see the roughness as well, where sometimes there are drips coming down. You know, that rapidity but also this sense of a really immersive space. But, of course, the life cycle, the idea of a life cycle is very traditional. But done with this kind of ambition, I think, is quite extraordinary. And this sense of futurity that both of them have, I mean, maybe that's a way to rethink what we often refer to as, you know, the utopian drive within modernism but this is a rather different kind of utopianism I think to think about here absolutely I wanted to ask about abstraction because to what extent did Hilma Afklint conceive of herself as an abstract painter because Mm. all the way through in this room for instance we're surrounded by these extraordinarily vast paintings Mm. and we can see there are floral motifs there is text Mm. is it right to talk about her as an abstract painter Mm. to a certain degree I think it's right in the sense that that category of abstract art is pretty problematic anyway. And I can't think of any abstract artist that really wanted to claim the term abstract, even Mondrian, you know, that sense of a pure plastic or, you know, concrete or something, anything, not abstract. But I think in a way my feeling is in the end, why would we not want to incorporate her within that tradition of what we call abstract art, for want of a a better term. And that actually, no, I don't think she was thinking about them as abstract paintings in the same way as we are now, or potentially even Mondrian was. I think they relate to that tradition of spiritual diagramming and decorative schemes and architectural decoration that, you know, certainly Steiner would go on to do. And in the ether, we try to suggest, in a way, those different traditions that she's working from. Well, let's go into the ether then. Bryony, in a way, this is the most intriguing space, I think, in the show. It's called the ether, as we say. It's the most contextual room. And mm. I feel 
to a certain extent, you're, you're saying to the audience, okay, you can come and immerse yourself in all this really complex stuff about theosophy and so on, but it's up to you to decide that. We're not going to bombard you with vitrines in the other spaces. It's almost like a library, this space, I mm. think. Well, th- that was intentional, to keep it away in a way, to allow you to see, you know, if we're going to say that Helmer of Clint is part of a history of abstraction, well, let her be an artist conceived of in that way and, and let's look at the worker's painting. Why would we not want to look at it seriously, to take her really seriously? But on the other hand, we wanted to give a sense of this heady, febrile... In a way, it's a kind of ecology, the connections between things. And it was intended to start with as a kind of paper world, you know, of these mixing, overlaps, connections, networks of art, spirituality, science, technology, and to show how interlinked they are. In this space, we show things as as varied as Rudolf Steiner's blackboard drawings through to Annie Bazant and Leadbeater's thought forms through to Anna Cassell, one of the group that Afklint worked the with. Five, the as five they were called, through yeah. to their automatic spiritual drawings, through to what I think is this wonderful notebook by Hilmer of Clint that's almost like a, a sort of spiritual field guide. <laughs> you can see these abstract diagrams. You know, this is Lily of the Valley, Convalaria Mayalis. Which, and what we're looking at is circles with geometric Absolutely. structures and abstract colour. Absolutely, and she often notes Gedanken, it's in German, and that's thought. So she'll, later on in this book, relating back, this is on flowers, mosses, lichen from 1919-20. We can compare this to her earlier botanical drawings, now she's searching for a different way to kind of schematise her ideas and this almost a kind of pantheistic set of notes. Often there are feelings or emotions that are noted down. So it's the opposite of a conventional flora. Later on she has this wonderful thing about mosses because mosses are at the end and she adds a note, the collective sound waves of mosses. So that relates again to sort of x-ray and different new forms of technology. So that's what we really wanted to suggest in this Space, rather than a kind of didactic telling you this influence that. Yeah. And it's a rewilding again of the, all the theories around Absolutely. modernism and so on, isn't it? It's, it's a complicating its roots and odd tendrils Absolutely. and so on. And, you know, putting together things that conventionally we wouldn't really expect to see together. Like, for example, Mondrian's latest flower painting from 1938 that's really the same time as some of those later grids that we've just looked at Bryony, thank you so much Thank you Ben, that was a pleasure Hilma Afklint and Piet Mondrian, Forms of Life is at Tate Modern until the 3rd of September and then at the Kunstmuseum Den Haag in the Netherlands from the 7th of October until the 25th of February next year. 
Coming up, Joan quick to see Smith on her Whitney retrospective and a Roman gateway is reconstructed in southern England. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The winner of a Sony World Photography Award has refused to accept the prize after revealing the winning photo he submitted was created using an artificial intelligence image generator. The Berlin-based photographer Boris Eldergsen won the creative category of the award's 2023 open competition with the work Pseudomnesia, the Electrician. By entering a computer-generated image to a traditional photography prize and then subsequently refusing to accept the award, Eldergsen claims he hopes to drive debate about the technology. The image was created using DALI2, an image generator developed by OpenAI, the San Francisco-based company that also created the AI chatbot ChatGPT. The awards judging panel gave the prize in the knowledge that Eldagson's image was AI-generated, a spokesperson said, but they accused him of deliberate attempts at misleading us by entering the competition under a false pretense and with the intention of spurning the award. Nazem Ahmad, a Lebanese collector and dealer who trades in art and diamonds, was indicted on Tuesday in New York along with eight co-conspirators in what the US Department of Homeland Security alleges is a vast international enterprise to evade sanctions and funnel financial support to the militant group Hezbollah. Ahmad, a dual Belgian-Lebanese citizen, is said to be a resident of Lebanon. His assets in Britain were also frozen on Tuesday. The investigation that led to Tuesday's indictments involving several US government departments found that after sanctions were imposed upon Ahmad in December 2019, entities under his control or acting on his behalf allegedly continued to transact in the US, importing goods worth more than $207 million and exporting goods worth more than $234 million, primarily art and diamonds. And finally, an ancient Nabataean temple with marble altars has been found in the Gulf of Pozzuoli, outside the Italian city of Naples. The Italian Ministry of Culture said that the altars date from the first half of the first century CE. It's unclear if the ancient ruins will be removed from the seabed. The Nabataean population was based in the desert areas of the Arabian Peninsula. Around 2,000 years ago, they established a settlement at Pozzuoli, building up the largest commercial port in the Roman Mediterranean area before its decline at the end of the 5th century. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This April, Christie's invites you to explore the spring auction of the art of the Islamic and Indian worlds, including oriental rugs and carpets, which features a magnificent group of mogul treasures that showcase the splendours of the Indian courts. Discover early eastern carpets that appear in western paintings, Persian manuscripts, Ottoman ceramics, as well as rugs and carpets that showcase the craftsmanship of cities, villages and nomadic encampments along the Silk Route. The exhibition runs from the 22nd to the 26th of April, April, with the sale taking place on the 27th. Meanwhile, in Dubai, Christie's celebrates modern and contemporary Middle Eastern art with the relaunch of its online auction in the region. The sale features a fresh and exciting selection of works in dialogue with the region's burgeoning art scene. Covering a wide variety of artistic production from the entire region, it includes works by artists from the Gulf, the Levant, Iraq and North Africa with strong female representation. The public viewing takes place at Christie's Dubai, located in the Dubai International Financial Centre. Viewing opens on the 8th of May and closes on the final day of the auction the 16th of May. To find out more, visit christies.com. Welcome back. 
Now, earlier this week, the first New York retrospective of Joan Quick to See Smith, a citizen of the Confederated Salish and Kootenay Nation, opened at the Whitney Museum. A long overdue survey of this groundbreaking artist, it's entitled Memory Map and brings together nearly five decades of Smith's drawings, prints, paintings and sculptures, the most comprehensive exhibition of her career to date. Our editor in the Americas, Ben Sutton, went to the Whitney to meet her. I wanted to start by talking about kind of the breadth of the show and the scope of it is bringing together more than 100 works and it really sort of spans your entire practice from sculpture and printmaking to obviously painting and drawing. I wanted to ask you sort of has seeing all this work together and the process of working on the show with the curator Laura Phipps, has it sort of brought any new insights for you into your work or have any kind of patterns or themes emerged that you maybe hadn't noticed before that sort of feel now a little more clear or apparent? Two things about that are that I don't think you realize what you've done because it goes away and you never see it again. And if you're so blessed to be able to see an accumulation like this, you go, I did that? (laughs) I'm amazed. Look, like, wow, I really did do a lot of work. And um, you're not aware of it. I mean, you remember some pieces, but you certainly don't remember at all. And even when you see the reproductions, until you actually see it in person, and you see that it's way richer than a reproduction shows. Like yesterday, I was looking at a painting, and I discovered in that painting, I had cut out a pillowcase that had embroidery on it and just glued it into the house and home inside the teepee. And I went up and touched it with my finger, and I, like, remembered. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, you know, something that a mnemonic device mm-hmm. you could feel, and the memory came back. You know, when you think about Native Americans using a kipu with different kinds of yarns, some rough, some soft, some fuzzy, and it brings back a memory. It was kind of like that mm. and delightful. So there were a lot of things that I saw that I didn't, remember doing, Mm -hmm. and then I saw them there. That was really wonderful. And the second thing is that you can see that this was an artist who had maybe not a clear direction, but from piece to piece to piece, you could see that there was a sense of movement, but that a continuum. Mm. That was really lovely to see that. In the interview in the catalog that you did with Larry Stokes Sims, You made this great point about talking about you yourself and your tribe as traders and and talking about yourself as somebody who does educational trading and intellectual trading, which I thought was such a perfect way of sort of talking about and thinking about your work. I wanted to ask how you approach your art is like a trade, sort of how you think of your practice as more like trading than just sort of the unilateral artist sends work out into the world. You know, when I was a kid, My father would be working on a horse trade, and he would be making coffee and sometimes making them something to eat. And they would work from morning all the way into the evening trading. Like, they would have some horses that they wanted to trade for something that my father had. And maybe saddles might be thrown into the mix. Maybe some bridles might be thrown into that. And it would just take all day to work on that. And then later, I would go stay with my cousin on the reservation. He founded the tribal college, and then he was the vice president there. 
and I would be there on the weekend, and he would have a couple of friends. Pat Morris, who was a, a renowned anthropologist, and there would be a couple others who would come. Mickey o- O'Donnell, who had wanted to be a priest and then wound up there teaching with the Indians. And they would be working on grants mm-hmm. for the college. And they would spend the whole weekend eating food, drinking coffee, telling jokes, laughing at the table. And I would be there making the coffee and listening to them. And they would be in competition to see who could write a grant that would bring in the most money. Mm-hmm. And it was like a game. Mm-hmm. And it was the process. Everything was about the process with my father and with my cousin and even like with the tribe. Mm-hmm. Everything is about the process and not quite so much the end result. And I think in the art world, we concentrate on just the end result and not the process. So when I come to a painting by another artist, I want to know more about the artist. I want to read about them. I want to know something about their process, what they were thinking, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So some people complain about the labels on the wall, but I'm a person who has a need to read the label and hope that there is something in there very telling about this artist, because after all, they're about communication too. Hopefully, sometimes not. (laughs) We know some artists who are not, but I think even abstract artists may be communicating in their own way, maybe a spiritual feeling, meditative, that kind of thing, because that's what I get from the art. So I think it's for me, I'm hoping that my art communicates to people, to viewers, and it may only be from their own experience. Mm -hmm. They may not want to share mine, and that's okay too. You know, if it causes them to have a better day or they go away thinking about the image. Mm-hmm. Maybe it made them see something about the world in a different way. I like that as well. I wanted to ask also, the Whitney and others have made a very big deal about the fact that this is the first retrospective in the museum's 92-year history devoted to a Native American artist. But it's also a museum that, you know, in that time has given a lot of space and attention to, you know, some of the biggest names in American art, Jasper Johns and... Robert Rauschenberg, you know, these artists who I think your work is often talked about in relationship with, but now finally this museum is getting itself together a little bit. I'm I'm curious for you, how important do you think it is that museums that for so long have not really included Native American art in their definition of modern and contemporary art are finally starting to correct that mistake? Well, the most important thing that happened was Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and Standing Rock that begin to shake some of the institutions in this country Mm -hmm. and rattle their cages because it was clear that there was an underbelly to this country that wasn't happy with the way things are. And we were all educated on the European canon, and we could only view art through the eyes of the edicts of the European canon. And yet those of us, people who are from another ethnicity, would view the art of our ethnic communities, quilts and beadwork and sculpture and carvings. And that's for the black community as well as for native community. 
you know, indigenous people, Latinx, Asian people, we were all viewing the artwork of our communities and renouncing that for the European canon if we were in school. And so how could we overcome that? Well, one way was to imitate those who were descendants of the European canon, Mm -hmm. the white people, would be to imitate them. And so the most outstanding ones, of course, were Rauschenberg, Warhol, and maybe Joan Mitchell, maybe Helen Frankenthaler. Mm -hmm. But imitating them and studying them in school was kind of what we had to do. And then how do you make it your own? And so I began with the premise that the map didn't belong to Jasper Johns. (laughs) The map was an abstract image of uh, stolen land in this country. So how could I turn the map into a new story? And I had a real struggle with that, and I had like a lot of uh, criticism from critics here in New York about doing that. Mm. And, of course, I was cutting up the New York Times using headlines out of the New York Times. So I was turning it in on itself and using their headlines, and then I would spread them out on a table and then reshuffle them to create a poem or a rap. I thought of it as my rap. Mm. And I would reshuffle those headlines across the table and turn them into my story and then glue them into the map or the flag. Well, I wanted to ask about that because I know, I think it was in the catalog interview again with um, Larry Stokes Sims, you talked about how the place where you grew up, which is sort of pretty marshy landscape from your description, is drying up and you know, yeah. the landscape's changing because of climate change and, and global yeah. warming. And, and I know, you know those issues are addressed a lot in your work in more or less subtle ways, depending on the piece. I'm curious kind of, if that was a sort of a conscious choice to start addressing climate change in your work or if it was just sort of like it, maybe it seems almost inevitable that art has to address it. But I, I'm curious how that subject or that topic worked its way in, into your work. You know, everything that I do is connected so... Whatever I'm writing about or lecturing about, whatever I'm painting about. And in the 70s, I was just making work about the landscapes at home on the reservation, the fields of mustard, the fields of fireweed or uh, whatever, the songbird ponds, which are dotted all over the reservation uh, with the cattails and the red-winged blackbirds and the warblers. And we have the nine-pipe bird reserve that's right on my reservation where in Albuquerque, I'm in the flyway for the migrations of birds. And so I'm just a mile from the river, from the Rio Grande. And they fly up the Rockies. So I'm right at the tail end of the Rockies. But then the Rockies, that becomes the Sandias. It becomes the spine of America. It goes all the way into South America to the Andes. And people don't quite see it that way, but that's how my feeling about it. Mm -hmm. It's like the spine of the Americas. And the birds migrate and follow that. So I'm in tune with their migration habits because when I hear them warbling over my studio, I run out to greet them because I know at this time of year they're going home. Like I even made art about this. I made some prints at Tamarind about them carrying messages from me going back up to the reservation Mm -hmm. to nest on the reservation. And in the fall, around the end of October and November, they come back and in the flyway, and then they're going to Bosque del Apache, which is a bird reserve just south of me. 
but some of them stay in Corrales, where I live, which is a farm community. So I'm a gardener, and watching the bumblebees, the wild bees, watching all the different kinds of butterflies, looking them up to see what their habits are, what the plants are that they like. So I was out looking for indigenous plants there. You couldn't then buy them in any store, and you're not supposed to go out and dig them up. And so I was looking for seed. This led me on a journey that I'm still doing today where I'm studying desert seeds, and there's a native seed search uh, company that started many years ago by Gary Nabhand, and they collect seeds from all the tribes in the Southwest that are thousands of years old. And so I buy some of their seed to garden with and then study other seeds that may have come in from the Spanish, like, for instance, some of the greens Mm. or some of the wild greens that the tribes have collected. I have the seed, and I can grow those out because I'm a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. So that's food that I can eat. That's led me on this path, one for my own food diet and then the other one for what I can grow there. Mm -hmm. And so... I can see the changing climate. It's just apparent in every way with the wild bees, with the bumblebees declining. I see this with my own eyes and experience this and what it means to me on my little acre, on Jean's acre, my sandbox. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things for children in the city. And I'm a believer that if they don't actually see a seed grow, they can't see the miracle of life. Because even as old as I am, to put a seed in the ground and then actually see it come up is still something that shakes my tree. Your next big project is that you're curating an exhibition at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. You're the first artist to curate an exhibition there in its entire history. It's going to be an exhibition of, I think, about 50 contemporary Native American artists. I'm curious how you're approaching that project and how the experience of working on this retrospective is sort of informed or shaped your approach to the the National Gallery show? Obviously very different types of exhibitions, but... Uh, When I was asked to do that exhibition, I just decided that what I'm dealing with is about the land. Mm -hmm. It's about the climate change. It's about our holistic world. And so I'm seeing that I want to hear from my own community again. I did it in 92, And we have beautiful works in that exhibition for SUNY at Albany. But now I want to see what's changed. And along with me, my community is following, not me, but following the same things I'm following. So the food shortages and the changes on their reservations or in their communities or in their ancestors' communities. So the work has changed. I'm really excited about this because I want people to see how Native people feel about their indigenous homelands. And even if they were bussed off the reservations in the cities in the 40s and 50s and maybe third generation out right now, they're still following this and they're still engaged with it. Some of the urban Indians are more engaged with social issues in the urban centers And that's okay, too, because that's probably more their homeland right now. But being engaged with that, their two things are connected. And so what we do on this map, this United States, this this abstract idea, is going to be important for the future. And a lot of the old ideas 
are being used by farmers. I was traveling in Idaho and noticing that they were cutting furrows on the side of a hill rather than skinning it and plowing it, putting the seed in between the grassy furrows. And I said, you know, that's a native way of um, farming. And so, because natives always paid attention to the plants that were symbiotic or related, Mm -hmm. often two things grow together, sometimes more. And so farmers and gardeners are paying more attention to the indigenous plants that belong in in your area or that grow naturally there. People are paying attention to that. I notice more things like this. Some of it is encapsulated in that show. And so when I wrote for the catalog, I wrote even more about indigenous philosophy, ideology, and how we view this Mother Earth, this Tierra Madre that we live on that gives us life, at least for now, until we go back into solar dust, because that's where we're going. But we just don't want to speed it up. I'm hoping that maybe this show will enlighten people Mm. about the United States, about this country, because after all, what people don't realize is everybody are foreigners here except for indigenous people, you know, and now most of us share some foreign blood, and so some of the indigenous people are more European than they are native, Uh but, you know, we have whole mixture and a whole range of ages in this exhibition, and so I'm hoping that people come to see it because I think it's going to be an enlightening experience. I guess I did want to ask about kind of your use of icons in your work. There's just a, such a vast, it's almost like a vocabulary of, of symbols that you're using in your work and across different series and eras. I'm curious kind of how you come to those symbols. I'm thinking of like the coyote who appears as a figure in your work. Um, there's the bison. There's sort of a men's war shirt. There's sort of all these symbols that recur. Uh, I'm curious kind of how you select those and, and sort of how you think of them. They're all related in some way to either present-day Salish and Kootenai or related in some way to ancestral lands or on the reservations. So the one thing that I think that is part of our creation story, and Coyote helped Amatkin turn on the lights, and Amatkin appointed Coyote guardian of the people. And so Coyote is neither fish nor fowl. Coyote is neither human or animal, and coyote is everything. Coyote is all that. Coyote is neither foolish nor intelligent, but coyote is everything. In the end, coyote is us. Coyote represents us, the worst of us and the best of us. And so what happens is I use coyote in all these different ways, and we have all these teaching stories. And because the stories have described our clothing, our food, um, our everything about our culture. It all lies within our language, and our language describes us. We didn't have industrial language, and so that was another research project that I just did for the National Gallery when I was writing that essay about why our language is so important to us, because it describes everything about our culture before the Europeans came. And then my father was a speaker, and then when I was denied, it was like giving me a lobotomy. It was like the things about my father that he could talk to me about or would tell me were not here because I couldn't speak the language. 
And so I didn't know all these years. I mean, I've wondered about that and about the dislocation of things for me when I didn't have that language to describe things. And when I started doing this research project at the National Gallery, I discovered that. So I'm really concerned now, even more so, we have an immersion school at home. Mm -hmm. But coyote and all the symbols of the bison, which was part of our main food diet with all the plants, we have six of the seven life zones. All that was all contained in the language, description of it, what you do with it, how you preserve it, all of that. And so some of that is gone. Some is handed down from the elders to the children. And when you're missing the language, you're missing all these descriptions. So because I've not got the language, I'm using all of these things together to describe myself and replace what's missing here, which I think of as a lobotomy when it was taken away. It's part of genocide to completely take away your whole language. is like a lobotomy. Thank you so much for, for your time and for, for talking so eloquently about your work and, and your life, and I really appreciate it. No, oh, thank you for that. Joan Quick to see Smith, Memory Map is at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York until the 13th of August. It's then at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in Texas from the 15th of October until the 7th of January next year, and then at the Seattle Art Museum from the 15th of February to the 12th of May next year. The exhibition Joan is curating at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. is called The Land Carries Our Ancestors, Contemporary Art by Native Americans. It runs from the 24th of September until 15th of January 2024 at the National Gallery of Art before travelling to the New Britain Museum of American Art in Connecticut from the 18th of April next year until the 15th of September. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. This week, a reconstruction of a wooden gateway built by the Romans was unveiled at Richborough in Kent, southern England, thought to be the place where the Roman invasion of Britain began in 43 CE. I spoke to Andrew J. Roberts, a properties historian with the charity English Heritage, specialising in Roman Britain, who's worked on the project, to find out more. Andrew, tell us first about the site itself and its history. So Richborough Roman Falls and Amphitheatre is an archaeological sign museum uh, just outside of Sandwich in Kent. And English Heritage have just finished refurbishing the museum, uh, which features uh, a new exhibition of a spectacular collection of Roman objects that we used on site. There's some hands-on interactives, there's some beautiful new artwork to help to bring the site to life and some of its people. And then the archaeological site itself is very rich, encompassing... The, the history of Roman Britain from the very start to the very end. And the new site presentation includes a refurbished, reimagined audio guide and a reconstruction of a Roman fortified gateway that once protected uh, the army of the Emperor Claudius when they began the invasion of Britain in AD 43. And is it right that Richborough was once an island in a river, basically? Yeah, it's really difficult to get your head around when you come to the site today because there is a river there, you know, it's a, quite a sleepy sort of place. But the coastline 1900 years ago was was completely different. Richborough basically sat upon this sea passage that joined together the English Channel with the Thames and Thanet was then an island. And this makes Richborough this 
incredibly well-connected place because there is this large natural harbour. It's just a short hop across the channel from what was then the, the Roman province of Gaul. And really it becomes, because of this, the Romans become interested in, in Richborough and they begin the invasion there. And then they also develop it into this this major pool, in fact, what was then the official gateway to Roman Britain. Right. And how settled is the idea that Richborough was definitely the place that they invaded? Because I know there used to be some dispute about this, but is, is Richborough basically the best guess or is it like absolutely confirmed that this was the site? Well, it's very difficult to get absolute confirmation in archaeology. OK, <laughs> so, I, you know, my opinion is that Richborough has the best claim to this based upon our available evidence. But I wouldn't say we're 100 percent. You can't really be 100 percent about these sort of things. And really clinching evidence, as, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that we have the archaeology of this fortification that was built here by Claudius as an army to protect the fleet as it lay at anchor in the Wonsum Channel. Right. Now, recent archaeology is behind the fact that you've actually been able to reconstruct this gateway, right? Because you discovered these deep holes in the ground, effectively, that are evidence of the previous gateway. Yeah, so Richborough was extensively excavated in the 1920s and 1930s, and they found all sorts of different buildings from different periods of, of the settlement. But what they found was the evidence of ditches um, that ran for, for about 650 metres, effectively sealing off what was then the, the island of Richborough, probable evidence of a, of a rampart, and then in the middle, a, a, a small gap. And in that small gap, they found these post holes, so these, these sort of square holes, which would have held these very large upright timbers, which would have been a, a sort of a gateway which with a tower above it. And so this evidence was then the beginning of the project. We conducted further archaeological examination to confirm what they found in the 1920s and 1930s. And then that gave us the basis to understand the format of the gateway, its potential scale, and then we used other evidence uh, to supplement that in order to put together an accurate reconstruction of what would once stood there. And what I love about that is that the evidence that you're using includes Trajan's column, that great column in Rome. So tell us about that. So for those that don't know, Trajan's column, it's a, a very tall column in the Forum in Rome. It's built by the Emperor Trajan to tell the story of his conquest of what was to become the Roman province of Dacia, so sort of roughly modern-day Romania, Hungary. And this was conquered by the Romans a few decades after the conquest of Britain. And it's this visual narrative that shows the preparations for the invasion, the crossing of rivers, the establishment of fortified camps, fighting of various different battles, essentially. And, And on that, there are very clear depictions of what these temporary fortifications that the Romans built looked like. And you can see these gateways and you can see the timbers and how they were put together. And you can see that the, the sort of the parapets and, and, and even some of the details of sort of how the, the wood was kind of put together and, and, and the carpentry and things like that. And have you used the kinds of wood that the Romans would have used in this gateway? In other words, how truthful, if you like, are you to the materials that were used by the Romans themselves? Um, I think it's pretty truthful. I, I'm not sure whether there was it was possible to analyse and get the exact type of timber, but we did use seasoned oak, which is quite commonly found in Britain. The Romans tended to use materials that were available to them. It's quite likely that actually they might have prepared it, flat-packed it and brought it over from, from northern <laughs> Gaul. So I think we can be reasonably secure in there that we're using similar kind of materials. And also similar mechanisms, right? 
Yeah, similar mechanisms. So many of the collections of Roman Britain include tools that the, the Romans would use for carpentry and the basic form of those tools and the purposes hasn't really changed that much in, in the intervening 2,000 years or so. And the basic techniques of jointing that carpenters use today are very similar to those that would have been used by the Romans. Okay, the Romans didn't have power tools, but the principles are still sort of the same. And can people climb this gateway? Will people be able to go to the top of it and look over the landscape as is apparently so very impressive? Yeah, you can. And and, and you can do various things with it. You can walk through the gateway. You can walk out of it as if you're sort of the Roman army progressing on with their <laughs> the invasions of Britain. You can walk back into it if you want. You can climb and stand on the rampart itself. And then the tower has a number of different stories. So you can climb up to the very top. And at that point, you get a real panorama of the site and you experience a view that hasn't been experienced since the soldiers experienced it in AD 43. And of course, that's really important, right, the view. That's an incredibly important element of all of it, because of course, one of the reasons they built this was as a mechanism of defence, as a means of monitoring what was going on around them. Well, it's absolutely vital that you have this foothold in the landscape that allows you to monitor the situation, anticipate any threats, and also be seen as well, because it's a sort of a statement that Rome has arrived. And so the military, by being present, are also projecting their power to those that might want to maybe attack them. Tell me about the museum display, because I'm, I'm intrigued to hear that there are things that are on display there that have not been on display before. And I'm just wondering why, if you've got yeah, these yeah. great Roman artefacts, why haven't they been on display before? Well, the Richwood collection is, is quite staggering. It is deep and rich. It's got great breadth in terms of the different kind of materials, different kind of items from fine glassware to monumental architectural stone to items of fashion, jewellery, to objects that pertain to Roman religion. But to display a collection like that requires a certain level of expense in terms of conservation and preparation of these items or what research has to go into to finding out what these items were used for and putting them in the proper context and then also presenting them to the standard that is required. And prior to this, the building rituals are really prepared in a way that that would have allowed us to do this. So a lot of what was on display was replicas or else was only a small portion of the collection. So what we've really done now is that we've put in showcases that enable us to put in a whole host of different kinds of objects and to, and to really show them off in a way that, that kind of brings out how really special they are and what they reveal about not just the rich Roman history of Roman Britain, but who the Romans were and really kind of get to reach some of the nuances of that. I wanted to ask you about the debate around reconstruction a bit, because I know that in archaeology and history generally, there are sort of ethical debates about whether reconstruction is the right way forward and so on. Are those sort of live debates in the team at English Heritage? Yeah. You know, for instance, was there any debate about whether this should be done as well as how it can be done? Yeah, of course there was. And, and we, we, you know, we fought long and hard about whether we should do it and then how we should do it. And some of the kind of things that we talk about is, you know, the importance of whether it might cause harm to the site, for example, and how we might mitigate that. So part of the reason for re-excavating the area was to check as to whether if we did something like this, it damaged the underlying archaeology and this confirmed that it would not. And we've done it in such a way so that if future generations decide they don't want to sort of endorse our choice, they can take it away and there will be no damage done to the site. It can be set back to how it was done before. I think it all has to be seen in context as to what is offering visitors in terms of how it will enrich their experience of the site and their their understanding of Roman Britain. And so we think we've done is really bring 
to the site a structure that captures the profundity of this moment, the very beginning of Roman Britain. And prior to the construction of this monument, there wasn't really very much to see. There was a couple of tiny little ditches and a bit of a gap. And I mean, I love a Roman ditch, but really it doesn't really (laughs) speak to the importance of that moment. It doesn't really speak to the form of it. So now people, I think, they can really experience what it would have been like to be at Richborough at this time. And also, aside from, from, from that moment of invasion, if you do climb up to the top and you look down, you get this great view of over 350 years of history at Richborough. And one of the great things about Richborough, also one of the difficulties of Richborough, is it's so complicated. And sometimes when you're in amongst it, it's very difficult to tell the wood from the trees. But if you can climb to the top of the gateway, you actually get this very clear portrait as to what all these different buildings are, what all these different ditches are, and you can kind of start putting them in order and really get a sense of how this place evolved over time. And of course, I guess one of the key things about how you tell that story is the kind of interpretive materials that you put together around it. So is it right that you're developing new ways of doing that? Yeah, so we we tried a number of different new techniques in comparison to the museum that was there previously. This is sort of a thematic exploration of Roman Britain and who the Romans were. It's it's also hands-on. And then my personal highlight is that on site, we've uh, revamped the idea of an audio guide. Generally speaking, you turn up on on an archaeological site and you get an audio guide with sort of a narrator telling you a little bit about the history and you might get a few expert interviews thrown in for good measure. But what we really wanted to do was to bring it up to date with the way that people tend to consume audio today and think about it more like a podcast and that you are following around the site friends who are very knowledgeable about the topic. And so we employed historian and broadcaster Tessa Dunlop, along with myself, we walked around the site and gave you sort of the fundamentals, what you really need to know to understand what, what you're looking at. And then along the way... We met a series of guests with lived experience and specialist skills who could bring really insightful observations about the site and what took place here so that we could really connect with the people that once lived here about 2,000 years ago. To give you an example, um, we talked to some British soldiers who have had to cope with being an occupying force and discussed with them, asked them, you know, how do they cope with the dangers of establishing control in in a new hostile territory and they talked about the sort of the fear and the boredom of watching and waiting in your fortification and also about the kind of the skills and the training and the preparation required to build a complex military infrastructure uh, such as the gateway in a hostile environment such as that that Claudius's army would have been operating in. Another personal highlight of mine was that I, I got to interview a professional boxer, a guy called Chef Clark from Kent, so he's kind of this modern day gladiator. And I interviewed him uh, <laughs> fresh after winning about via knockout at Wembley Arena in front of thousands of people. And, and we heard from you know what it's like to walk into an arena, walk out and fight with you know your, your life potentially at stake in front of an audience like that that would have attended Richborough's Amphitheatre 1800 years ago. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. The Roman Gateway and Rampart at Richborough Roman Fort and Amphitheatre in Kent is now open. 
And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Julia Mahowska and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Bryony, Ben and Joan and Andrew. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.